continuing our reading in Luke 24. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels, some who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But they did not see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they reached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them, assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. On that first Good Friday, the sun set like the final scene of Infinity War. With evil apparently triumphant and the fate of the world left hanging in the balance. Now, if you don't know what this is about, I'll give you the real quick synopsis. It's a superhero movie and I watched this movie over the Christmas holidays, and my son uh, Jude told me about everything that was going on so I could get caught up and ready for the big finale. But at the very end of the, me of the movie, this villain wins. He destroys half of the living creatures on the planet, and then he sits down at that 
mountainous overview and the sun is setting and, and he has this look of, of just satisfaction on his face. Like I won. I got what I wanted. It's over. And I was thinking about the time where Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane and he's surrounded by evil and they're about to take him away and he utters these words. He says, this is your hour when darkness reigns. There is this time where it seems like good has lost, right has lost, and yet we know that this isn't the end of the story. It can't be. Endgame is a compelling story because it's built on the archetypical human story of good versus evil, right versus wrong, life versus death. And starting Thursday night, theaters will be packed on the surface because people like to be entertained, but just below the surface because people need to know that good triumphs in the end. They need to know that the bad guy doesn't sit satisfied as the sun sets on their world. So while the final chapter of Luke's gospel begins on a somber note with some women visiting a tomb where his body lie, almost as soon as the story begins, it takes an unexpected turn. Now, there were a couple of unexpected things that happened, but that weren't incredibly shocking. They get to the tomb and the stone was rolled away. Now, I mean, that's a big deal, but certainly a few people, strong people, I imagine, could have moved that away. They go in and they find that the body is, is gone. And, I mean, that too is, you could kind of wrap your head around that. Maybe someone has snuck in and stolen the body. Like, you, they're trying to process what's happening here. But the real shocking thing is what comes next. They see these figures with clothes that look like they're glowing, asking this question, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. And then all of a sudden, this is not just some strong people moving a stone away or, or someone stealing the body for some reason or the other. All of a sudden, this takes on a whole other level. You see, most of the time, things stay dead. We had the, these noon hour reflections during the month of Lent, and Susan Fish led us in an exercise at one point where we were planting seeds in a little container, and I was so excited um, a week later when my seeds started sprouting up, and I was like, this is awesome, like life right here, and then I forgot to water them, and they died. I watered them again after that, but you know that they didn't come back, no, they just stayed dead, because most things do stay dead. And yet this angelic figure says to the women, remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day raised again. Well, the women return from the tomb to tell what they've been seen. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. And so there we have the first reaction to the original Easter story, nonsense. It might be a reaction that some in this room or some in our culture have as well. Well, this just can't be true. Now, I have to point out that while Tina Fey has the best eye rolls of all, uh, this is a historically inaccurate picture because it was the men who were rolling their eyes, right? The men were the one who didn't believe the story. So I just want to point that out. Nonsense aside, though, Peter decides to see for himself. And when he does poke his head into the empty tomb, we're told he went away wondering to himself, what had happened? Christ is risen. So most of the time, things stay dead, but not always, all right? So about a month or two ago, I bought Melissa some tulips, and then a few days later, they look like that. I asked her the question, did you water them? <laughs> you know the answer. 
Uh, no, what? Water? You know, so, so dead were the tulips, and I thought, well, you know what? Maybe it's not too late. Just give it a little water, see what happens. And lo and behold, the next day, woo, they started to have a little life. And then later that night, a little more. And then the next morning, and they just keep growing. So maybe, maybe not everything has to stay dead. Now, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. So we got a couple of Jesus followers on a little bit of a journey. I like what N.T. Wright says. He says, nobody on the eve of the first Good Friday was saying, well, that was all very horrible, but at least he died for the sins of the world so we know it'll be all right. No. They were saying, we backed the wrong guy. We better get out of town quick before they come for us too. So that's what we can imagine is happening as these two guys are on their way out of town. It's like, we better get out of here because if they find out that we were his followers, we could be up there too. So it was a two-hour walk, basically like walking from here to St. Jacob's. And along this road, for some unknown reason, Jesus picks these two disciples as travel companions, which I think gives us an extra little bit of good news on this day full of good news, is that they're basically insignificant people. One of them is named Cleopas. We don't even know what the other person's name is, and neither of them, didn't, neither of them really did anything significant from then on. But Jesus appeared to these two particular men. Now, as grateful as I am that Luke carefully investigated everything from the beginning, as he said at the beginning of the gospel, there are a few details I wish he would have explored further. The last time we saw Jesus, his lifeless body was being placed in a garden tomb. And I can't help but wonder... You know, when we think about the Easter story and when we talk about this every year, uh, we always talk about the, the awe or the shock of the, the women as they came up and they found the stone rolled away or as Peter and then John came after him and, and they get to the tomb and they're looking in and we always hear about their reaction. I, w- I want to know what, like, what Jesus' reaction was inside the tomb. Like, have you ever thought about that? Like, all of a sudden he's just like, <gasps> like, what was that moment like? Like, why doesn't Luke tell us about that? Like, I'd love a whole chapter or two in the Bible about that. Jesus explaining what it was like to be raised back to life after being dead in a tomb for two days. Wow. And so he comes up to them and in a nonchalant manner says, what are you discussing together as you walk along? Somehow his appearance was uh, not recognizable. They, even though they were followers of Jesus, they didn't know who he was. They didn't recognize him. And so they go on to tell him about what had happened over the last few days. They tell him about this guy named Jesus and how he was doing miraculous things, and he was a great teacher, and they say that he was arrested, and they tell him how he was crucified and, and buried, and it was this terrible thing. And then they go on also to say that there were some strange rumors swirling from some women folk who said that they went to the tomb, and the body wasn't there, and there was some kind of an announcement by some angelic being. Uh, they said it's kind of all confusing. And in the midst of their explanation, they say we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. It's just one of the the saddest lines in the New Testament. This loss of hope. After Jesus is executed, buried in a grave, his followers lost hope. Most of us are like Cleopas and his unnamed companion at various points of our life's journey. We've heard this and we've experienced that. And yet sometimes we're left more confused. We don't know what to think of it all. We don't know what to do next. What we need is for someone to come alongside us and help us make sense of it all. And of course, this is part of the good news of Easter, that even when things fall apart all around us, even when we're confused or disappointed or just completely lost, we're never walking alone. I listened to this great interview a couple of weeks ago with an artist uh, named, a painter named Bruce Herman, and he tells this story 
about this day when uh, one afternoon he was in his kitchen uh, washing dishes, and he hears this loud explosion, this like massive boom, like a bomb had just gone off. And around him, there's these two electrical outlets on either side of the sink, and these blue flames burst out of the outlets, and they form an arc around his body, and he's got this electricity like all around him, and then all of a sudden, they zap back into the wall, and the house fills with smoke. Later on, he goes on to discover that his house had been struck by lightning, by three consecutive bolts of lightning. His house was built up on a granite ridge, and so there was nowhere for the, the lightning to go when it hit the ground, so it went along the surface of the ground, burst in his basement window, and blew up his oil burner. So it just blew up the bottom of his house, and all of a sudden, before he knew it, his entire house was filling with smoke and was on fire. And so he grabs, like, gets his head around what's happening to him, takes off out of the house, and his house burns to the ground, including 25 years of his artwork, which was stored in the basement of his house. This is what he does for a living. He paints 25 years of his paintings. They were hanging and being stored in the basement, which was the driest part of the house, which was right beside the oil furnace that had just burnt up. And so in the interview, the, the woman who's interviewing him asks a question, or basically makes a statement, like, that must have been devastating. And without a hesitation, he responds, no, it really wasn't. Right after the fire, that same afternoon or evening, my wife and I went dancing. And I'm listening to this going, what? Like, I, I would like, go into a cave somewhere and not appear for months. Like, my entire life work just gone just like that. And he's like, oh, let's go dancing. Don't have a house anymore. Like. And he goes on to explain. He says, like, most people look at this and they say, oh, what a catastrophe. And he said, no, this is something that's called a catastrophe." It's a word coined by J.R.R. Tolkien, and he says that he defines it this way, a sudden and favorable resolution of events in a story, a happy ending. Now, how can you describe the blowing up of your house, the loss of 25 years' worth of art, as a, a catastrophe, a happy ending to the story? And he goes on to explain about how it just gave his, him and his wife so much better perspective that all the things they talked about in their faith were all of a sudden put in the flesh and blood, and they had to live it out. And he's like, it's the best thing that could have happened to us. Well, that's incredible. And so here we have this story of Jesus and his followers watching him being arrested and executed and buried in this tomb, but all of a sudden they realize that this is not actually a catastrophe. This is a catastrophe. This is a sudden and happy ending to the story. And so they invite him to dinner. They hadn't realized who he was yet, these two men. And, and they invite him to come over for dinner. And then before the meal, they maybe say, would you like to say the blessing here? He's like, sure, I'll do that. And so he gives bread. He takes the bread, gives thanks, broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. All of a sudden, they're like, I recognize this little ceremony. This is Jesus. And then he disappears. It's awesome. And they looked at each other and asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us? And I think that's another way, too, that we respond to the Easter story. Sometimes we might just dismiss it and say, oh, this is just nonsense. But sometimes I think we recognize, ah, this is what it was. I have this, this sense. There's something in me that's longing for more, that's, that just knows something more significant is going on in this world. And then we hear the story and we're like, oh, that's what it was. That's what my heart was burning about. So off went Cleopas and his friend heading right back to where they came from to spread the news. Christ is risen. 
So the other day, Helen came into my office, and she put this letter on my desk, and it had a little fridge magnet with it. It was a, a thank you letter from an organization that our church has given money to. And so I've blocked out the describing, identifying details here. And there's a little line on the bottom. I'll blow it up for you so you can read it. It says this. Next slide. We have this little fridge magnet to help remind you how important you are to us. Now, the only problem with this is who the uh, letter is addressed to. Dear default. Oh, shoot. Like, so close. So, so close to being meaningful. So close. Well, Jesus was intent on making sure that all of his disciples knew how important they were. It wasn't just Cleopas and his friend, right? He wanted to make sure that they all knew. So he interrupted their excitable conversation and appeared in their midst. So here these disciples are, and they rush back to Jerusalem, and they're like, oh my goodness, you'll never believe. We were talking with this guy. He broke bread. All of a sudden, we realized this is Jesus. And they're like, yeah, yeah, we've got this figured out because Peter, he saw him too. And we don't know what that story is, but he saw Peter. And then they're like, yeah, and the women, they saw the empty tomb. It's all coming together. Jesus is alive. But they were startled and frightened when he appeared in their midst, thinking they saw a ghost. The disciples are dumbfounded. The Bible says that they are struck with joy and amazement. So Jesus asks for some food in order to prove to them that he's not a ghost. He's like doing like a little, he's like a street magician. You know, like you you walk up and he's like gathers a little crowd and he's like, "Uh, I need something. Give me a little something. Anyone got a piece of food? And someone's like, I got a broiled fish. He's like, yeah, that'll be good. And so he takes the broiled fish. He's like, watch this. And he eats the broiled fish and it actually goes into like his belly. It doesn't drop on the floor. And they're like, oh my goodness, this is not a ghost. This is the real Jesus. He's like, yeah, it's me, guys. The thing I love about Jesus' response here is that he's gentle with his disciples. He handles their fledgling faith with compassion and with empathy. And he gives me hope that he might do the same with ours. Because most of us can identify with how difficult it is to believe sometimes. And I think this part of the story reminds us that Jesus is gentle with our struggling faith. That when we're like, I don't know about this. Can you, can you eat something in front of us? Could you somehow prove this? Jesus is like, okay, I'll reveal myself to you. I'll show you who I am. I want to continue reading um, from this latter part of Luke's gospel here, Luke 24. Talk about what Jesus had to say to this group of followers that were gathered. It says, then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. And so here we get to the crux of the story. Repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name. I want to read a little segment from Eugene Peterson. He writes, The consciousness of sin, of inadequacy, of unworthiness, is a regular part of worship. We aren't what we should be. We fail miserably. Consciousness of sin is a regular part of worship. Despair isn't. In this place of worship, Sin is matched and then wiped out by forgiveness, the assurance of pardon. We don't confess our sins so we can wallow in despair, but so that we can hear the joyful words of forgiveness. Friends, hear the good news of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. The significance of Jesus' death and resurrection is all bound up in this call for a global announcement of grace, repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This means all of our personal most private sins, like the pride that we carry around with us like a badge of honor, or the lies that we tell to make things easier for ourselves at the expense of others. But it also means all of the more hidden ways that we are broken as individuals and as families and as cities 
and as nations and as churches. Easter is an announcement that every manner of sin will be forgiven when we turn our backs on a way of life that is anything other than the life that we've been created to live. On a morning when I woke to news of coordinated bombings in Sri Lanka, including three churches, after reading this weekend about resurging terrorist activity in Northern Ireland, and even gang violence right here in our own city, we need to know that there is a way out of this mess we humans are in, that good triumphs in the end. Easter is an announcement that violence, hatred, greed, the list goes on, do not get the last word. Now the very next thing that Jesus does is implicate everyone who receives this grace into the mission. He makes this announcement, this forgiveness of sins, this is going to be spread out to everyone, and you guys are going to be the ones who do it. You are witnesses of these things, he says. Stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Jamie Smith refers to the world that we live in as the tragic arena in which we are called to embody compassion and forgiveness. And so this is another way that we can respond to the Easter story. We can just brush it off as nonsense. Or we can recognize in it some kind of a feeling that we've had before, but not sure what to do with it. Or we can embody the Easter story. We can live out this compassion and forgiveness that God has demonstrated to us in Christ. I want to read the message translation of a beautiful passage from 2 Corinthians 5 as I wrap up here. Anyone united with the Messiah gets a fresh start, is created new. The old life is gone, a new life burgeons. Look at it. All this comes from the God who settled the relationship between us and him and then called us to settle our relationships with each other. God put the world square with himself through the Messiah, giving the world a fresh start by offering forgiveness of sins. God has given us the task of telling everyone what he's doing. We're Christ's representatives. God uses us to persuade men and women to drop their differences and enter into God's work of making things right between them. We're speaking for Christ himself now. Become friends with God. He's already a friend with you. How, you say? In Christ. God put on him the wrong who never did anything wrong so we could be put right with God. They're beautiful words. Easter is a celebration of Jesus' resurrection and an invitation for every one of us to be reconciled to God and to live in light of a world where a grave does not get the final word. This may be just one day out of the year, but it's a day that sows its seeds of hope into all of our other days. Christ is risen. I invite you to stand. Lord, on this joyful morning, we give thanks. And I pray for every person who's in this room today, those who hear the story and think it's nonsense, those who hear the story and recognize some kind of affinity with it at some deep hidden level, and those as well who are ready to embody this message. I pray that you would reach each of us where we're at, that you would treat us gently as you treated the first witnesses of your resurrection. And I ask that as we go today, as we spend time with friends or with family, with coworkers through the course of the days to come, that the, the, exercise, the echoes of hope will be ringing in our ears, that we would remember that you have given us an incredible gift and that you've asked us to pass that gift on. So God, we celebrate you today. We celebrate what you've done in our lives and in our world. 
And with thanks we pray in Christ's name. Amen.